As we come now before God and his word, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in uh, Genesis, no surprise there, Genesis chapter 6. We'll continue on in Genesis 6. And before we read, would you please, please pray with me. Our great God, we know that your, your word here is a herald of righteousness. That is, that you proclaim to us here what is good according to your good will and purposes. So, Lord, as we sit under these things, I and us, would you help us now to, to listen, to receive what you've given to us here. Help us to be attentive and eager by your Spirit. And help us to believe and follow you and this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 6. We have quite a number of verses, although it's a narrative, so it's a, a, easier to take it all in together. We'll begin in verse 9 and carry in through the end of the chapter. This is Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah... Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of all the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of God. Now, what we have here is, is just the beginning of the Great Flood narrative, which will take us through into chapter 9. 
And the center of the whole uh, flood narrative, the anchor of the entire account, is just three words that we'll find later in chapter 8, at the open of chapter 8. The words are, God remembered Noah. That's the anchor of the flood account, so we need to keep that in our pocket as we go along. But we're not to chapter 8 yet. You know, we'll, we'll look at that when we get there. We want today to look at what we find here in this first part of the narrative. Today, our primary focus is upon the ark. We have here Noah's ark. And lots of people, uh, whether they're Christians or not, are familiar with Noah's Ark, and that's been the case for a very long time. People at least have sort of basic functioning knowledge of this, and that's been the case for thousands of years. There are other ancient cultures who also have their own ancient accounts of this great flood, a sort of Ark, a sort of Noah figure. Some of the most famous ones you might be familiar with, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, has, has a flood account uh, from the early Assyrians. Also, the, the Atrahasis epic, which is early Babylonians, also has a sort of flood account. Whether you know those or not, you don't really need to know them. There are similarities and some also differences between those and what we have here with Noah. But it's really no, no concern for us doesn't damage our view of the Bible, nor is it any surprise that many other cultures throughout the centuries would have a, a, a telling of this historical event of the flood. It's possible even that Moses, the writer here, may have had some of those other accounts in mind as he's writing now of Noah, maybe even specifically drawing some comparison and, and important contrast with them. There's a whole discussion about that, but that's not our focus here. Today, we're just going to do our best with God's help, help us, Lord, to look at this Genesis text as it is and listen to what God says here, particularly in relation to the ark. What can we learn about the ark? When we read this text in Genesis, for the reader, the ark might seem like a really big boat. And there's a sense in which that's true, of course, but this is not a, the ark is not a typical boat for the time period at all. Not just because of its size, it's huge, but mostly because of its structure. There are totally different words in Hebrew for, for boat, for ship, for fleet. None of those are the words used here. The ark is different than those. The ark here has no sails, no mast, no rudder, no bow, no stern, no anchor, no oars, none of the things that we often associate with boats. In fact, if you knew nothing about Noah's ark, if you'd never heard of it before, and suddenly you walked in and saw it, saw the ark. You might not even recognize that it was meant to float on the water. If you just saw it sitting there, you might assume that it's just a really wide, tall building, because that's what it looked like. The ark is a giant block. In fact, the word for ark in Hebrew literally means box or chest. So Noah's Ark is just a really big, fancy box. And we tend to think, maybe you do, at least I do, when I hear the word Ark, I tend to immediately think of Noah, right? 
ark associated with Noah. But in the scriptures of the Old Testament, there are actually two arks mentioned in the Old Testament. Outside of these chapters here in Genesis, chapters 6 through 9, the word ark appears in only one other section in the Bible. The other ark is maybe not what some of you are already thinking. It's not the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this small box that priests carried on poles, was primarily kept in the Holy of Holies. That's where the Lord would meet with the people, meet with the priests on top of it, where he would dwell in the area called the Mercy Seat. It's an important part of their culture, but the Ark of the Covenant is a totally different Hebrew word for Ark. This word here, there's an Ark of Noah, but there's another Ark, which is the Ark of Moses. So, in the early chapters of Exodus, when Moses was first born in Egypt, and the Pharaoh at the time was attempting some sort of population control of the people of Israel by trying to kill off the baby boys, Moses' mother, Jochebed, makes an ark, a box. My Bible translates the word basket in Genesis chapter 2, but it's the same word for ark here. And she seals this little ark with pitch so that it will float. And she tucks Moses in there and hides Moses in this ark amongst the reeds in the river until the day that the Pharaoh's daughter comes and happens to see this ark of Moses and takes him out of the water and then raises this baby, Hebrew baby boy Moses in the house of Pharaoh. This, that's the other ark. These two arcs, Noah's and Moses' ark, they clearly have a lot in common, right? They're both boxes that are carefully constructed to float on the water. Both are God's means of saving a single key person who will then become the means of saving many others. But there's one notable difference between these two arcs. It's not just their size. Of course, Moses' ark is small, it's, it's just for him, and Noah's Ark is huge for his, him, his family, and, and for this whole zoo. So, of course, they're different in size, but they're also different in their maker. That is, Moses' Ark was made for him at the hands of his mother. Noah's Ark was made by him with the work of his own hands. In fact, the first time we hear the ark mentioned, the first word of the Lord on this in our text is in verse 14, and the Lord says, make yourself an ark. Which leads us to this conclusion. If Noah is to be saved by the ark, he must do the work to make it. If Noah is to be saved by the ark, he must do the work to make it. We know, of course, that the Lord is God. He doesn't strictly need Noah's work or effort in order to save Noah. 
the Lord could have just spoken the ark into existence, right? Let there be ark, and there was ark. That's the way he did it with the rest of creation in the open of Genesis. But that's not what he does now. By God's wisdom, that's not his approach. Instead of speaking and creating an ark, he commands Noah to do it. Noah, I want you to make yourself an ark. And the Lord gives Noah just a few parameters about this, how this ark is supposed to be made. He tells him some of the basic materials to use. He's supposed to use gopher wood or whatever type of wood that is. We, we don't know exactly, but gopher wood is how my Bible translates it. Some sort of wood, and it's to be sealed with pitch. So those are the materials. He also gives a basic structure that it's supposed to have a roof that's a little bit above, and some rooms. There's three deck levels and one big door in the side. He also gives the dimensions here, which my Bible leaves in the, in the cubits, but I did a little bit of rough measuring and calculation. It's roughly the size as if uh, our building here, the building of Big Creek, had another building right next to it that was connected, identical to it, but next to us, and were 12 right next to each other. 12 of our building all bound together. That's roughly the size that we're looking at here. And, and we're given no details at all in this chapter or elsewhere about how Noah actually went about making this ark. We just get the tidy summary at the end of the chapter. Noah did this. <laughs> he did all that God commanded him. And even though we're not told how he went about it, I mean, it's evident that this is a huge, huge undertaking. Noah's got to pay for all this somehow. Gather up the material. Cut them all to the right dimensions. Measure, them, cut, uh, measure twice, cut once. And then he's got to assemble all the materials. Figure out how to make this huge thing stable and sea, seaworthy. This is Noah's singular life mission for a long, long, long time. It doesn't tell us how long it took Noah to build this, although some scholars think, uh, I don't know what to make of this, but it's worth mentioning, earlier in the chapter it says that, uh, that man's days will be 120 years, and some people think that is a sort of countdown to the flood, that, that God is giving Noah 120 years uh, in order to make this. I don't know, perhaps it was less than that or perhaps more, I don't know. However long it, it took, Noah lived in obedience to God's command to make himself an ark. And if Noah does not obey that command, there will be no salvation. Not only for him, but also for his family. If he disobeys, the ark is never built, and Noah is also swallowed up in the flood waters and blotted out with the rest of all mankind on the land. So for Noah to obey is to be saved, but to disobey is to perish. We should look then at what obedience looks like, or maybe the flip side, what disobedience looks like. Disobedience, and therefore perishing, might have come 
in a bunch of different forms. I'll let you make your own you know, connections about what this might look like for us in, in other contexts, but I'll mention at least what it might look like here. He might have disobeyed by, by ignoring obedience. That is, Noah could have just you know, stopped his ears to, to the Lord's command about the ark altogether. He could have just said, hey, I walk with God. I'm in covenant with God. I'm a righteous man before God. Surely God will spare me no matter what I do. I don't need to build this big old ark. God is merciful and mighty to save. I believe him. I trust him. You know, I've got plenty of other good things that he has me to carry on with those. I'm going to focus on those things. That's disobedience. That's commonly how we think about disobedience, and it's true. But there are other forms of disobedience, not just to ignore obedience. He could also have obedience just intended. That is, Noah could have, could have put this on his to-do list. Make ark. Takes two words to write down, a little longer to do it. To-do list, make ark. Maybe he even started drawing up some of the blueprints. We've got the basic outside dimensions, so we need some blueprints there. Maybe, maybe he put some gopher wood on his Amazon shopping cart. And, and, and for whatever reason, that's about as far as it went. You know, maybe it was because he just felt like the task was too much to tackle. You know, he got too preoccupied with some other business that he needed to do. Maybe he decided that he needed to go pray about it first. And he kind of got stuck there, but just never got around to actually building it. If that were the case, that's disobedience. Good intention without action amounts to disobedience. Disobedience also might have looked like an obedience that was incomplete. That is, if Noah had started the marathon of the ark but was unable to finish it, Maybe he spent a hundred years building a solid base and some walls and all the rooms in the ark, but the roof was just a bunch of open beams that weren't covered yet. And you know, Noah looks at all of his work that he's been working on, and, and he convinces himself that he's done a really good job, he's worked really hard, he's earned a break and needs a vacation from this ark, and he'll get back to it when he's done. And so he goes on a break, and that break is a day or two then seven, then ten, turns into weeks, months, years, and before he knows it, the roof is still unfinished when the raindrops of the flood begin to fall. That's an incomplete obedience. And the fourth and final one, perhaps the most dangerous because it is most common, disobedience might look like an obedience that is inadequate an inadequate obedience. That is, Noah might have technically finished building the ark, but cut corners. Did a sloppy job just to get the whole thing done. So he was told by God to cover the inside and the outside with pitch, and so he does it, just as the Lord says, but he leaves holes and gaps in the work. And he shuttles himself and all the animals in, and, and then the rain begins. Day one of rain, day two, day five, ten, twenty. And at some point, this carelessly built ark begins to fail. 
The water begins to seep in through the cracks where the pitch was inadequate and then begins, goes from seeping to pouring in. And before we know it, the ark is full of water and sinks. You know, for Noah, proper obedience to God is literally a matter of life and death. If his obedience is either ignored or intended or incomplete or inadequate, he will drown. And so he needs an obedience to the Lord that that receives the word, acts upon that word, perseveres in that word, and is diligent in the perseverance. That's the sort of obedience required to make it on the ark now question. How do you compare? Is this what your obedience looks like? If the Lord had commanded you, instead of Noah, to make for yourself an ark, would you be saved? Some people at this point, maybe even some of you might be thinking, ooh, you know, preacher, this is starting to sound a little bit like works righteousness. Sounds like we're saved based on what we do. Hold on a minute, preacher. Christians are supposed to trust in Jesus, not their works. I am saved by grace through faith. That's true, which is not the whole story. If we look in the Bible at that text, which is in Ephesians chapter 2, this is what it says. If I can find it, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A lot going on here. Let me try to unpack what this means. It is true that salvation is not now or ever merited or earned by the works that we do. That's not what happened for Noah, for you, or for anyone. If that were the case, no one would live. Our merit is based on completely on the perfect work of Jesus, which he has given us by the grace of God. But, listen, that perfect work of Jesus, which is all his work, not yours, that work of Jesus will produce good work in the life of a Christian. It will. It must. Our salvation, then, is never earned by our works, but it is accompanied by our works. Works always arise out of true faith in Jesus and grace in Jesus, which means all of this ultimately comes from Jesus. Our obedience doesn't undermine one bit the work or grace of Jesus to save. 
Jesus works a saving faith in us, and that saving faith will produce good works, evidence that the faith is real. So a Christian, then, is like Noah in the sense that our obedience is one of a righteousness that comes by faith. But that righteousness must come, or else the faith is not real. James puts it very simply, you know, the the sentence, faith without works is dead. And Genesis is just giving us a very tangible example with that. Faith without a man-made ark is dead. It's death. Now, all of this might make some of us, maybe even including me, a little uneasy. Make a squirm in our seats. Maybe the question or some form of it comes to mind. If this is right, if, if the salvation of God must be accompanied by my obedience then how obedient do I need to be to be saved? How good is good enough? It's a common question for many people, although it's not a question that the Bible focuses on, which suggests that if we dwell on it too long, it's going to lead us off on a a path we don't want to take. In response to that question, I can at least say this. For Noah, he needed to be obedient enough to build a seaworthy ark. It's a big obedience. Because that's no small task. So for us, God does not call us to anything less than that. You know, if God said, I want you to devote everything you own, every dollar, every penny, to a single task, would you do it? If God said, I want you to, to devote your days, your years, your decades of time to this one single task, would you do it? If God said, I want you to, to devote your daily work to this task that's going to look to some people in the world completely foolish, would you do it? God asks commands of you not to build an ark, but he commands something bigger to us. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9. You'll know this. Verse 23, Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the opposite than the brand of Christianity that some people pitch, just believe, and then you're good. The Christian life is not 
cheap grace that asks nothing of us. Jesus is of the highest, greatest work. And to have Jesus is in some sense completely free to us, and in another sense is going to cost us everything that we have and even that we are. To put faith in Jesus calls us to deny our very selves, to take up our cross daily and to follow him wherever he would lead. The ark of obedience is built on faith, but it's a costly ark. If all of this is frightening to you, to now doubt or wonder if you're really following after Jesus, I don't want to be too quick to try to ease those fears. Because perhaps some measure of fear is good, fitting. You know, most of the people in Noah's day didn't even feel a tinge or tingle of fear. They were busy eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the very day that Noah entered the ark and they were all swept away in the flood. We don't want that. We are better off seeing the sin of disobedience and the dire consequences of even a half-built boat. So I don't want to just brush that away. At the same time, I don't want to unsettle any confidence or rest that a real believer ought to have. We should rest and find peace in Jesus. There's tension in these things. So so what do we do? I think the good place for us to land is similar to the people in the days of Pentecost. So when they were confronted with their own sin, when they saw themselves in the light of the very glory of God, the text in Acts chapter 2 says that they were cut to the heart. It disturbed them. And then they cried out a question, what should we do? The answer to that question from the apostles is, you repent of sin, you believe in Jesus, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what many of them did. And that faith in Jesus really changed their lives in a way that they fervently sought obedience. From that day on, they devoted themselves to teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to prayer. They joined in fellowship and of sharing of meals. They sold what they had in order to give to those who had need. And they were filled with gladness and and regular daily praise to God. We want that. So we need to do the same. To repent of our sin to believe in Jesus and then to be filled with his spirit so that his spirit would now lead us in a sort of obedience that that receives his word, acts on his word, and acts with perseverance and diligence. May the Lord do that in us. Pray with me. Lord, we... We are sinners in need of your grace and help, all of us. So, Lord, we humbly ask 
that you would do this great work in us, that you would cause us to will and to work for your good pleasure, produce in us a sort of obedience, righteousness that comes from a faith in you, that we would not boast in our own works, that we would honor you in all things, and that our lives would be made righteous in your sight. Do this in us, we ask in in Jesus' name. Amen.